Welcome to Power Up, a podcast show hosted by Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio that brings life to some of the stories on power electronics technologies and products featured on powerelectronicsnews.com and through other Aspencore media publications. In this show, you'll hear both engineers and executives discuss news, challenges and opportunities for power electronics in markets such as automotive, industrial and consumer. Here is your host, Editor-in-Chief of PowerElectronicsNews.com and EEWeb.com, Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio. Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Power Up. Power Up Community. This is the big power electronics family. And uh, last time during our Power Up Visual Conference in June, we had an exceptional lineup of speakers and companies. Many thanks to the companies and speakers who helped make Power Up Visual Conference possible. All of our speakers were top notch. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Together, we can push the PowerUp community forward to unlock the full potential of power electronics, wideband gap technology, and the other technological advancements that have occurred in the field of electronics engineering as a whole. Simply put, innovation is the process of discovering new and better ways to do something. Let's believe in the potential of new ideas and implement the PowerUp innovation. The energy impact ahead will play a key role in the course of history. A greener future has become one of the, our planet's most essential goals. Industry sectors are working hard to invest in more efficient power conversion and electrification technologies. Together, let's power up our understanding, our capabilities and our collective efforts to pave the way for a brighter, more sustainable future boosted by cutting-edge power electronics. We all have the goal of creating a better world under the topic of sustainability. In this podcast, you will hear the voice of some speakers talked during PowerUp Virtual Conference. Let's discover Gen and Silicon Garbide with Alex Lidl, CEO of EPC, and Guy Moxie, Senior Director, Power Products at Volspeed. They will be together in the Q&A. And then with Victor Veliadis, Executive Director and CTO of Power America. Hi, everyone. How are you? Hello, hello. Hey, how are you doing, Maurizio? I'm fine, thank you. So we have Hello. a couple of questions. Thanks a lot for being uh, at the Power Up. So the first one, so we started, we have started with uh, two great topics. One Ken, one Sinogarbide. Starting uh, with Ken, so Alex, you mentioned Ken for space. Uh, some um, you mentioned. So can you tell me, uh, so some impl- example of implementation of GAN for space, why GAN for space, uh, differences in terms of design modeling uh, of uh, the CDC converter, for example. So, why GAN for space? Yeah, uh, so, so first of all, the, the main function of a satellite in space is to be a power supply. And then you stick things on it, like uh, communications or, or you know cameras, whatever it is. But the value of a satellite is how many watts it can supply to a load for how many kilograms the satellite weighs. Mm-hmm. And therefore, efficiency is extraordinarily valuable. So is anything that reduces size and weight. Uh, and that's GAN. Also, satellites tend to run at lower voltages. A typical uh, satellite bus would be 110 volts. Uh, so, you know, it isn't like, a, you know, a, an AC bus in a house. 
Uh, so this is a sweet spot for GAN. Uh, they're used in two big application types. One is DC to DC converters uh, for all the power supplies that take from the solar panels and get it to the load. That's about half of the applications. The other half are in reaction wheels or motor drives. And these are, are, are relatively massive wheels that turn and as they turn, the satellite reacts by moving. Mm -hmm. And that way you can position the satellite uh, to, for example, an antenna to focus on an exact spot or a camera to go on an exact spot. So those are, those are two big applications, which, you know, is just about everything on a satellite except for maybe the thing that, uh, okay. that powers the communication gear. Thank you. So, Guy, you mention motor control but for, for similar bike we can talk also about uh, electric vehicles uh, industry is going to electric vehicles uh, some oems are focused on SIC, other on igbt other hybrid solution what's your comment um i think there's something for everybody of course um and at the end of the day when you're talking about electric vehicles it's turning a motor so it all connects into what I was, was talking about previously. And yes, you know, I showed, I think the slide two or three was a 120 kilowatt IGBT drivetrain compared to a 180 kilowatt silicon carbide drivetrain. Just the fear, just the sheer difference in sizes and power density was incredible weight. And of course, then you've got system level efficiency. So the value prop of silicon carbide for turning a battery powered vehicle is incredible and yeah we come across now the electrification of everything on the road and alex comes across this as well in the lower voltage side inside the body electronics of cars and the lidar stuff is 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 huge content bomb content and we have drivetrains in two and three wheelers that are you know a few kilowatts up to supercars and trucks and e-buses that are six you know 600 kilowatts to a megawatt type level so there's definitely a, a coverage of all sorts of silicon technologies that go in them but you're never going to get a drivetrain system that's going to be more efficient with, than using silicon carbide have a much greater power density and of course when it's battery powered which is what you referenced to on your on the electric vehicles, it all means smaller batteries or longer range. So Alex, in, uh, in slide five, if I'm uh, correct, you explain RDSO on the limit. Uh, there is an equation, the number four comes from the breakdown voltage. Uh, the other elements come from, uh, comes, come from uh, width of the drift region, that is Poisson distribution. Uh, what limits future improvements in uh, energy density in this industry conversion? So I see you introduce new GAN devices going toward the limit, which will be the issue to face. Um, and uh, if you uh, expect the GAN to go beyond higher voltage. Uh, so a lot of questions there. Uh, so let's first deal with power density and then we'll deal with higher voltages. Um, so power density, uh, is uh, at, at this point limited only by the theoretical limits of GAN. And as I said in my talk, we're 150X away from that. Uh, we recently made a factor of two improvement. Uh, we have in our sites uh, plans to get uh, about another, I'd say maybe 40 to 60X improvement over the next several years. Uh, and then the last little bit 
uh, is limited by things that we don't know how to overcome, such as uh, the, the fundamental um, power density allowed through metals and things like that. It's called electromigration limits. Uh, so I, I, th I think you can expect power densities to increase quite a bit. Um, in terms of voltages, uh, right, you know, I've been very vocal in saying that GAN and silicon carbide kind of have a, a different worlds. The interface is somewhere around 600 to 900 volts, uh, with that gray zone uh, being maybe the battle zone. Uh, and uh, I, I still believe that's true. I think that GAN's mm -hmm. great strength comes from its lateral uh, configuration. Uh, the current Con is conducted along the surface uh, via a quantum mechanical two-dimensional electron gas, which allows electrons to move extremely efficiently. The minute you go to higher voltages, that lateral conduction doesn't make sense. You have to go vertical, and you lose many of the advantages of GAN, uh, and it becomes more comparable to silicon carbide, which is a material that is thermally more efficient than GAN. So I suspect that this, this barrier between the two will, will remain uh, you know, it, 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 certainly into the near future. Thank you, Alex. So we are starting some polls, so feel free to vote uh, just in the chat uh, poll and click your preference. So Guy, um, two questions for, for you. One, uh, what about the mass production of 200 millimeter devices? Uh, an update about that. And uh, silicon carbide module, uh, how do you see the future for that? Well, one, one leads directly into the other, and 200 millimeter is here today. <clears throat> um, we shipped our first qualified 200 millimeter device this quarter from our new Mohawk Valley fab, which is dedicated 200 millimeter, right through vertical, the whole vertical supply chain from materials through to finish fab. Um, so we are very excited about that. It's a big milestone for wall speed and honestly, the industry. Um, this quarter. You know, it takes time, as Greg Lowe says, it takes time to ramp up a fab, um, any whether it's silicon or silicon carbide. So Mohawk Valley is full steam ahead. And obviously, we're, we're coming out the ground now on the, uh, the JP for the materials. All of this is based around 200 millimeter. So that's from the, the, the materials and the chip side, which is incredibly progressive. But then when you come to modules, yes, um, again, depends on which industry segment you're, you're looking at and you mm -hmm. need to address. You're always going to have the thermal challenge with silicon carbide because obviously our chip sizes are smaller than silicon IGBTs, for example. We don't have a big slug of silicon to dissipate the heat. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to be a little bit more creative. But the ones that can, which is, tends to be automotive, there's some pretty exotic modules now in drivetrains. Doesn't necessarily have to be, but there is, and die attach, sintering. But don't forget, I talked about motor drives, industrial drives. Really, we're still looking at the Wolfpack base plateless packages, then going into the the good old semi-tran three type of packages when you go up in ampacity in the XM3s, and then the big when we're releasing mid-voltage, the big LM3 house bricks. So there's a good collection of all sorts of packaging in silicon carbide modules today, running from the the innovative right through to a, a housing that's been around since, you know, Alex released his IRF 640s. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. So we have... Uh... 
one uh, minute more or less for each one. So final comment, uh, maybe what is product roadmap for the next year or uh, what future developments or breakthroughs do you anticipate in the field of SIG and GAN? So just one, uh, one minute for each one, Alex and Guy. All right, so uh, I, I assume that my I'll go first, and and uh, I think that in GAN you can expect uh, two things. One is greater uh, power density. We just introduced our Gen 6 last year. We're working on our Gen 7. In the meantime, this year we're filling out the Gen 6 line, so we'll write over all of our Gen 5 products with Gen 6s by the end of uh, probably about mid-2024. The second thing is more complex uh, and um, you know, uh, easier to use integrated circuits. We have uh, families of uh, power stages, which are half bridges that include level shifters and drivers and logic and stuff like that. We're adding more features and functions. We're going to different power levels, different voltage levels. The, the half bridge is a fundamental building block of power conversion. So I see that as, as we get to higher and higher power densities in the discrete platform, that will become the dominant power conversion component for lower voltages. Thank you, Alex. Guy. I'm really loving the integration that I'm seeing in, in the GAN space. It's fantastic. It just makes total sense. For us in silicon carbide, it's pretty simple. More amps, more volts, more packages. You know, we span from a couple of amps right up to now 2,000 amps in modules. We're introducing more voltage nodes you know, it's not just 600, 650, 900, 1,000, 1,217, but we're going up in volts to catch the renewable energy, um, higher voltage DC buses. And we've already mentioned some, some incredible new, new packaging to go along with it. But I think the most important thing for everyone to know for silicon carbide, more capacity. So talking about, uh, so going at higher voltage, where do you see better the competition? For example, in automotive, because I see inverter with GAN, inverter with silicon carbide. Uh, talking about vertical GAN, for example, but also what about another substrate that wouldn't be silicon to improve the performance at higher voltages? So what's your comment? So uh, the GAN devices that are commercially available today, they're lateral GAN devices, as you was mentioned in the previous um, session. And uh, lateral GAN devices have uh, certain advantages, like the two-dimension electron gas that allows for very high mobility. But because they're lateral devices, they're limited to about 600, 650 volts. There's transform that has a 900-volt uh, device. But, uh, you know, the gate-to-drain separation needs to increase to accommodate the higher voltage, and the buffer layers need to become thicker to withstand the higher voltage. So the lateral devices... Um, you know, have a limitation as to far they, as, as to how far they can go. Now, there's this big um, transition from 400 volt batteries to 800 volt batteries in electric vehicles, and when you get to 800 volt uh, batteries, you're going to need 1200 volt devices. For silicon carbide, uh, the 1200 volt device was released as a product back in 2011. Uh, many choices, many companies, and uh, several generations of improvement. Uh, in the case of GAN, if you want to use the 650-volt uh, 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 class devices that are in the market, uh, to, to do the inverter with an 800-volt battery, you have to do a three-level uh, topology. And three-level topology has more complex control. It does have advantages, though, in the sense that uh, it produces cleaner uh, waveforms. Maybe there's less 
uh, stress on the devices themselves. So there are a lot of companies out there and a lot of projects from universities to reference drawings that are basically examining the three-level GAN inverter solution versus the two-level silicon carbide. Now, as you mentioned, Mauricio, if you want to go to 1,200-volt GAN and beyond, uh, you need to go to a vertical configuration. And to go to a vertical configuration, your substrate has to be GAN. So the GAN substrates have to be developed and come to the maturity point where they can be in product. And then you need to develop all the processing uh, for the vertical case. In the lateral case of GAN, uh, it's actually a really good thing that you're using standard silicon processes to make the device. When you get to the vertical GAN device, uh, then there's going to be specialized processing for the GAN um, vertical device. So that, you know, uh, creates, um, you know, additional work together with the substrate. Uh, and that is the road that you need to take to go to higher voltage. So really, in the short term, the real competition will be a two-level 1,200-volt uh, silicon carbide MOSFET or JFET uh, implementing the, you know, the, the traction inverter uh, versus a three-level GAN with uh, many offerings, uh, you know, at the 650 level, uh, 650 volt level, um, you know, devices. Thank you. So I have a question about uh, reliability, quality in terms of manufacturing. Uh, so the the wafer manufacturing process being with a substrate scan that would identify defects and so on using uh, so techniques, particular so coordinate tracking and so on. Uh, how do, do you assess the material quality of wideband gap semiconductor and how does this would impact the reliability? I know that is a, big, a wide topic. It's a wide topic, yes, uh, but certainly one that's uh, up for uh, a lot of discussion and debate. So with respect to silicon carbide, the substrates have gotten a lot better. Uh, the fact that they're uh, basically um, cut off at a four-degree angle uh, mm-hmm. Uh, basically transforms about 95% of the basal plane dislocations in the substrate into benign uh, threading edge dislocations in the epitaxy. So that's a very, very uh, good thing. Uh, Nevertheless, you do have uh, defects. You have primarily BPDs that are, you know, killer defects really at uh, at high um, concentrations. Mm -hmm. And you also produce defects in silicon carbide at the implantation stage. So depending on how you do the implantation, what your recipe is, but also the history of the wafer, uh, getting to that point, uh, you can generate BPDs at that implantation step. Um, So uh, that's one area where we need to see some improvement. The second area, of course, is the gate oxide silicon carbide interface, which tends to have roughness. And there's a lot of uh, dangling bonds. And the bottom line is you have a lot of traps, and that uh, basically reduces the mobility, so higher resistance, and it also affects the threshold voltage, and that's a reliability concern. Now, um, I got to say that with respect to basal plane dislocations, uh, when you do um, the burn-in uh, at the end of the processing, that's something that you can basically detect, and then it will be a hit at your yields, uh, not so much a reliability concern, but you know, with the threshold voltage instability, um, that tends to be more of a reliability problem. Um, depending on how you bias the device, you can either make it more resistive by increasing the threshold, or you can reduce the threshold to the point where uh, some electric, uh, you know, some voltage spike uh, might turn the device on. So I, I see the, the work 
in in cleaning up the basal plane dislocations as as the the big step. Um, and then the second thing is uh, the gate oxide interface. There's a lot of room for improvement there. Uh, so those are the two things. And of course, in the GAN material as well, uh, reduction of traps, getting rid of the dynamic uh, RDS on. Um, again, it's a, it's a quality material type of thing. Now, there's a lot of inspection out there and tools, uh, but there's yet to be a standardized substrate um, you know, inspection that will tell you the the usable area. You get usable area from one uh, manufacturer and it might be different to what you basically use your own tools to calculate a usable area. And I think there are efforts uh, underway to basically standardize uh, the defects. So when you get a wafer from one uh, manufacturer talking about a certain usable area, uh, it will be the same um, you know, as you, as you get a wafer from another manufacturer. So all the defects will be defined in a certain way and the usable area will be defined in a standardized way. So work is being done in materials to address those things. Okay, thank you. So just uh, very fast, uh, uh, there is a poll about uh, uh, maybe you can uh, comment or vote. Which industrial application do you believe would benefit the most from the availability of a commercially viable monolithic bidirectional seek and gain switches, which is, which is your vote? Yes, I would say it's it's motor drives. Um, if, if you go to the, um, you know, um, oh, okay, so the question is commercially monolithic bidirectional silicon carbide and gas. Yeah, the second one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a huge application would be the onboard charger. We want to have okay. vehicles that will take vehicles. Um, energy to charge the car, but you also want the vehicle to act as a battery uh, when the house uh, basically needs, um, you know, needs energy or to stabilize the grid, right? You only drive okay. the car a limited amount of time. You want to use the car to stabilize the grid. So vehicle to vehicle is an application and a vehicle to okay. grid, grid to vehicle. That's a good, really big bidirectional application. Advanced power semiconductor solutions enabled by wideband gap are a key level to reduce cooling efforts and minimize energy loss in data centers via improved system architectures. Wideband gap solutions contribute greatly to achieving net zero goals by enabling the benefits of higher energy efficiency and hence supported decarbonization efforts. Beyond the data centers, also the consumer market, industry, telecom infrastructure, solar and automotive markets will benefit from the use of more efficient wideband gap-based system solutions. Let's talk with Johannes Schoeswall, business line head Epic at Infineon, Stephen Oliver, Vice President Corporate Marketing and Investor Relations at Navitas, Marina Das, Senior Director of Technical Marketing of Advanced Power Division at Onsemi. So thanks a lot for this uh, talk. So um, CO2 reduction as a priority in uh, industry. Uh, the also exponential increase uh, in the ama- amount of data uh, being uh, communicated and processed around uh, the globe is driving the energy consumption of data centers. That is another application and the communication networks. Um, I guess that there is an estimation about uh, more than uh, 50% of total electricity demand by 2030, uh, I guess, by data center. So how to stop data centers from consuming uh, uh, electricity? So which are the design techniques, uh, considerations, but maybe not only data centers, we have also others, as you mentioned in your talk. 
Yeah, thank you very much for this question. So I think it will be hard to fully stop data center consuming electrical energy. But what we definitely can work on in making sure that electrical energy is used in the most efficient way. Um, so when we look at how power flows into data, data center and how it's distributed, then I think there are three major components to look at. Uh, first one mm -hmm. is really the consumption of the energy by the processing units and the memories. This is for sure the core where, where most of the power goes and where most of the power should go because there it's really needed in order to do the computing, to do the data crunching. Then, of course, we need to bring the power to these cores, to these memories, to these loads. Uh, and there we have a lot of power delivery stages in the data center from the AC input from the grid down to the point of load, down to the low voltage of around one volt where typically CPUs are running. And then on top of all of that, there's, of course, cooling. 50% of the energy consumed in data centers is typically flowing into cooling because, uh, especially on the power delivery side, uh, there can be efficiency improvements done. So what we want to focus on as power semiconductor company, as Infineon, is on the power delivery flow. The other companies that take care of the computing itself, that this is done in a very efficient way. And I think there's tremendous progress uh, happening there. But we can really focus on this power delivery flow. And again, here, I think there's multiple elements to look at. So when we look at these various conversion stages, look into a DC-DC converter at a very low voltage level into intermediate bus converters, into AC-DC power supplies, just moving to the latest technology generations. As we mentioned it in this uh, keynote speech, moving to silicon carbide, moving to gallium nitride already brings efficiency levels up. And in this way, we reduce the power that is wasted on the way towards the uh, actual CPU where it is really needed. Um, so this is one element on the technology level, on the product level. The other element is to move to new topologies. Yeah? So we can see that uh, there are, with the white banked materials, new topologies, new innovations possible. The prime example is always the totem pole PFC, where you move from a more traditional PFC to a totem pole PFC with silicon carbide, for example, and that increases uh, the efficiency in the PFC stage already a lot. So moving to the new uh, topologies can help in order to further increase the efficiency level in the power delivery path. Yeah, and last but not least, I think there's also the architectural level when we look at the overall data centers. So uh, today, often we have uninterruptible power supplies, uh, of course, in the data center. Often they're still in series uh, of this entire power delivery flow, which simply add additional losses. If we can uh, architect this differently, and this is happening already today, like in the open compute architecture, then uh, you can have uh, the backup power on a DC level, maybe even down to the server rack, and it's in parallel to the power delivery flow. And so overall, that also improves efficiency. So to sum it up, I think from a server perspective, yes, you are totally right. Uh, our data consumption goes up and up and up. Uh, that drives more network traffic, that drives more compute power. We have new applications like AI that are emerging very fast. And so here it's important that we make sure that the energy that is needed in order to do all this compute is actually delivered there in the most efficient way. And that we can do on a technology level with new topologies and uh, with new architectures. I think that will really help to reduce how fast uh, 
data centers consume, uh, increase the consumption of electrically energy. But as I said, I believe it will still go up. So then there's also the other piece of generating this energy in a very efficient way, which brings us into renewable energy generation. So another question is, uh, so the goal is um, to increase, to accelerate uh, even more decarbonization in industry. So this is a step for all industry, but also each of us should take the first step. I mean, to to a sort of green path that each of us should should have. So what policy frameworks or in incentives exist or should exist to support and accelerate decarbonization in industry? Or in another way, what are key technological bottlenecks preventing mm. the, the more widespread uh, deployment of uh, zero low carbon energy sources? Yeah, so there are frameworks already in place, I would say, from uh, on national, international levels. When we look at the yeah, policies that, from your count. that are being deployed, uh, I just looked that up. So in Germany, there's quite some. There's a so-called EEG, Renewable Energy Sources Act. There's energy efficiency, efficiency measures that incentivize efficient energy consumption. There's a carbon pricing mechanism on top of the EU emissions trading system. There's for sure additional stuff that, that I'm not aware of and we are not aware of. So I think a lot is already being done. And also when mm -hmm. we hear the public discourse and the political discourse is already being done to move towards green energy, to accelerate decarbonization, to make sure that we move away from fossil fuels. So I think we can clearly see that and I leave it to politics uh, to, to work further on that. And I think that is actually moving uh, in the right direction. There's a lot of Awareness in, in the public created by all of us that this is an important topic and I think policies are moving here in the right direction. Now, the second piece that you ask is, so what are really the bottlenecks? And I think uh, that is really interesting uh, topic, especially if you compare it to the traditional fossil fuels or fossil energy sources, right? Uh, and when you look at it from a generation, transportation, and also storage, uh, transportation and, and storage and consumption perspective. Uh, let's take fossil fuels, right? So I think uh, the industry has uh, worked a lot and optimized how they get uh, the fossil energies, uh, uh, fossil fuels out uh, of Earth. Uh, it's getting increasingly costly to do so. Uh, it's a lot of investment that needs to go there. There's a lot of environmental protection around it. But this is an efficient process. However, it's getting extremely expensive, I would say, just to get the fossil fuels and energy uh, out uh, as a first step. The transportation and storage is, I would say, extremely cheap today. If you look at uh, fossil fuels, right, what do you need in order to store it? You need a tank. Yes, certain security measures around it. It's pretty straightforward. Just build a big tank where you can put in gas, oil, whatever it might be. And then there's the consumption, which is more or less efficient. Yeah, it's optimized in terms of technology. Let's look at the car, the combustion engine, very optimized in terms of technology. Is it super efficient versus other ways of driving a motor? Probably not, but it's, it's a quite, uh, quite well established technology. So in terms of cost optimization, I think that has already reached its, its plateau. When we compare it now with renewable energies, uh, I think the industry has made tremendous progress when it comes to generation of renewable energies, right? The solar energy uh, generation has become extremely cost efficient. So I think 
here we are already on sometimes on par, depends on the specific country, on par to how much uh, the energy costs versus fossil fuels. So I think there, uh, I don't see really anymore a bottleneck or a major limitation. That's something where we just need to make progress and continue pushing forward to transition towards renewable energy sources. When it comes to consumption, I think it's quite obvious Everyone who drives an electric car knows that the electric motor is just such a, a better driving experience, right? So it's a very efficient way of consuming uh, uh, energy. And uh, so therefore, I think in terms of consumption, also there, uh, there is with electric energy, big benefit when it comes uh, to renewable energies versus fossil fuels. And for sure, moving forward, we will also see that the cost of how we consume uh, this electric energy also further goes down. But then there is this important piece in between, which is not the transportation, but very much the storage of electrical energy coming from renewables. And that is really the bottleneck, I believe, today. So how can we make sure that we store this electrical energy uh, that is generated from various renewable energy sources? Obviously, they have a different uh, pattern in terms of delivery versus fossil uh, energy sources. So when the sun is shining, there's more. When there's clouds, there's less. So we need to have means of flattening out this uh, delivery curve so that from a load perspective, we can use it in an even way. And here we need storage. And that, I think, is today a bottleneck. It's still very expensive, not enough available. And that is where major investments will need to flow into in order to really accelerate this transition towards a uh, carbon neutral industry and society further. Meanings, energy storage in terms of battery energy storage, it might be hydrogen energy storage. And here again, I think semiconductors will play a very critical role. One needs charging, discharging, doing all of this in the most efficient way will require again advanced semiconductor solutions. So I would say Bottleneck policies, I think, are on the way. I think this is pushed very hard. Uh, I think that is good progress. Uh, we are making good progress in uh, the generation of renewable energies, also how we consume that. I think there's a lot of progress made. Big topic to address is really the storage piece. And we know that there are companies out there that really work on that, that really want to make a big progress very fast. And I think there will be a key growth area for the next years uh, this energy storage for renewable energies. So talking about uh, um, automotive, electric vehicles, solar, uh, industrial application, do you think the market will be split between IGBT and uh, silicon carbide, at least in the first step, hybrid solution? I mean, what do you think? What are the, the issues? And uh, in uh, not not so in solar, in wind application, if there is, uh, if you can mention a case study with uh, cool SIC wind power invert? Yeah, so on the automotive side, I would say, and in general, I would say that now, as we are in this journey, right, from a very silicon dominating power semiconductor industry towards a wide bank gap, heavy power semiconductor industry, we will, of course, as you just said, see in this transition phase mixed or hybrid solutions. Yeah, this mm -hmm. mixed and hybrid solutions in the car is always a nice example because it's very close to all of us. Uh, we can see that on a system level, uh, full car, and we look at the main inverter on the drivetrain, yes, a hybrid solution can make sense, right? If you have a two axle uh, implement, uh, two axles, and you have one axle with IGBTs and the other one with silicon carbide, 
then uh, you can take the best of both worlds as of today, meaning that you use silicon carbide, especially in light load. Uh, so when you drive, uh, your acceleration is low and you just, you're just cruising, you go with the silicon carbide driven axle, and then on top of it, you put the IGBD driven one when you go full steam. So then you get the best of both worlds because with silicon carbide, you're super energy efficient. When you drive an electric car, most of the time your low profile is in light load. So most of the time you will drive in this way. When you really need full steam, you go to the IGBDs. The IGBD have very high current handling capability. The cost performance is really good. And combining these two in a system then uh, makes, of course, sense as of today. And in a similar way, uh, you can also have it in an onboard charger, right? In an onboard charger today or probably in the near future, uh, we will also have hybrid solutions. And today I would say you do exactly this totem pole PFC that I mentioned with silicon carbide. You have Coolmos also there for the slow lag. You add uh, on the DC-DC stage gallium nitride and for Syncrack you do silicon. It's a beautiful uh, mix of technologies today. But also over time, uh, economists of scale, of course, kick in for white banker. Right? So the cost will come down progressively. And we will see that the benefit of moving to the full by bank app solution, we will see coming up more often. And in this way, we will see that this hybrid solution slowly, I believe, will fade out and we will see more and more and more moving towards maybe it's a pure silicon carbide solution when it comes to uh, a traction inverter or when it comes to the uh, onboard charger, it might be a, a pure gallium nitride play because the density is so critical. That will evolve over time, I think. So we... We will see how that will evolve, but uh, my assumption is that over time, this hybrid solution slowly fade out, and we will see more and more uh, pure wide band gap uh, solutions as they provide the ultimate performance level at increasingly better cost performance points. Thank you. So we have a poll. Yeah. To vote for, for the poll, please please go to the tab poll. So, and uh, Johannes, I would like to invite you to vote. Which sector to f do you think will benefit from the most from the use of more efficient wideband gap-based system solutions? Tell me your comment. So let me first see what you have here. So you have data centers and digital services, uh, then consumer market, like electronics and appliances, industry and manufacturing, and others. Yeah, I think the sentiment of uh, the audience uh, also reflects uh, my view yeah. uh, because data centers and digital services, what I mentioned before, I think here at this very point in time, often the new requirements that are coming up just give you no choice uh, than moving towards wide bank gap. It's even not anymore whether there is a benefit or not. It is a must because the power density requirements are so high and you can only do it if you move towards a silicon carbide or uh, gallium nitride-based system. So I think uh, there I agree. In industry and manufacturing, uh, in interesting response, uh, but I also can see that, right, when we look into, um, yeah, again, industrial power supplies, for example, power mm -hmm. delivery there, when we also have renewables in here, right, then, of course, the highest efficiency level pays definitely off. However, over time, I think we will see, if we would do this vote again, I guess in three years and then again in five years, I think we would see also the consumer bar moving further up because it will become more obvious for us that, for example, gallium nitride is not just nice to have in a charger adapter for these yeah. uh, nice form factors, but gallium nitride can also save you energy 
major home appliances, for example. And and we will increasingly more all want to save energy. Yeah? And so I think over time, we will also see it in the consumer market more strongly that we see, okay, there is really clearly a benefit. Today, admittedly, often that still needs to be worked out. What is really the value of this white blanket material in such an application like a home appliance application? And here, we also work very closely with customers to figure that out. Because often it is not, like we know it from the silicon world, or you go from Coolmos generation 6, 7 to 8, and you always get a little bit improvements. But it is completely changing the system design. Yeah, this new topology that I mentioned also in the keynote speech, right? And only then you get the benefit of gallium nitride and the bidirectional switch in terms of efficiency, bomb savings, and so on. And what this value proposition is for a customer depends maybe on the application, but also on the specifics of this customer, right? So how do they design their system? And how do we need to change this specific system design so that right bank it starts to make sense also commercially? And that is really the, the journey I think we are all in as an industry. On silicon carbide less, I think it's very well understood in many, many applications already. In gallium nitride, for some applications it's understood, and in others clearly to be further worked on jointly with customers. But the potential is there. So I think in a couple of years, the, the world would look slightly different. Thank you for this great talk. Thank you. So uh, you mentioned electric vehicles. So uh, we have a couple of questions that I would like to share with you. So electric sure. vehicles uh, revolution that is uh, speeding up the trends, the trend towards uh, a more sustainable future. Talking about uh, again, silicon carbide uh, in particular, cost that we need to reduce cost. Talking about silicon carbide, uh, this will be a wafer diameter device technology, just the scale of, of production. So what about uh, how to reduce the, the cost? I guess that uh, we will find a solution in terms of silver bite. Again, maybe you can tell me where uh, you will see more SIC, more GAN or hybrid. But hybrid not only in terms of uh, wide band gap, also silicon and wide band gap, maybe. So what do you think? Okay, a lot of questions. I think the first thing is that we will always be looking at system cost. So yep. you, even if uh, a, a GAN device or a silicon carbide device is a higher price than an equivalent silicon, it brings with it so many benefits that the system cost is reduced. Um, also system size and weight and increases efficiency. For the GAN side of the house, um, you know, this, the Navitas technology is GAN on silicon. And the silicon wafer is a standard commodity, so it's like $40 for a wafer. So that's already a very low cost. And we'll see, um, you know, as volume increases, we'll get economies of scale there as well. Uh, for, again, in a system, we're approaching price parity for a 65-watt charger for a phone. We're already crossing that, that Rubicon <laughs> for... Um, data center and EV, so already across the price tipping point. Silicon carbide, um, there's a big reduction in wafer cost that we're seeing. If you go back maybe four or five years, there was only Cree, uh, now Wolf Speed, and uh, it was maybe $3,000 per wafer. So that was very expensive. But we've seen recently less than $900 per wafer, uh, maybe six or seven or eight qualified vendors in the world. And if you look forward about 
three or four years again, we you know we can see prices less than five hundred dollars approaching four hundred dollars. So that the cost element is really reducing very quickly in silicon carbide. I think you mentioned the kind of trade-off between maybe a hybrid of silicon and yes the new materials. Um, I, I think that over time everything will go to the new material. Silicon MOSFETs will go to GAN. Silicon IGBTs will go to silicon carbide. I think the the investigation recently in this kind of hybrid approach, um, I think some of that is due to supply constraints. Mm -hmm. Maybe some people are a little worried about you know how many silicon carbide wafers can be created, but I think overall it's going to silicon carbide. So I think the hybrid is a is an interim point. So I, I see a big change going ahead. So talking about also electric vehicle, a point that so this is a wide topic. We talked at PCM reliability because uh, in uh, in automotive we need to ensure that uh, devices are re reliable. I guess right. this is an important not only in automotive but also in industrial solar, for example. For silicon carbide, I mentioned in the presentation the um, the old planar version, very reliable. The trench silicon carbide, not so much, but the the best of both worlds, the trench-assisted planar gate from Navitas, that's that's a really strong um, product. Um, we've got excellent field results and, and you know, AEC qualification for automotive. So that's it's kind of a done deal. Obviously, every technology needs to prove itself in the market to mm -hmm. be good. And I think silicon carbide has done that. Gallium nitride is maybe 10 or 15 years younger than silicon carbide. So it's still uh, being accepted by the industry. Um, the first shipments that we had were into the fast charger market, you know, and we went for, I think, 50 million units shipped without a single field return. Um, but as you go into higher power applications like solar and automotive, this thing needs to live for 20 years on your roof. You can't mm -hmm. send somebody up with a ladder to fix it every time. So we've actually used our strength from the consumer markets, the mobile markets, going into data center and higher. And we've got a 20-year warranty on our GAN Power ICs. Uh, we're the only company to do that. It's it's 10 or maybe even 20 times longer than, than our friends in competition. So we really believe in the technology. The integration of the GAN Power IC, protecting that gate is also critical. Uh, we've seen many cases where, where customers have turned to us with relief um, because you know they can focus on the design of the system, not how to protect the gate of the GANFET. So having that integrated gate, also having more features and functions, we can actually do, for example, uh, current sensing in a lossless way within our GANPAR ICs. And that means we can detect and then protect because we have autonomous turnoff within 30 nanoseconds, which is six times faster than kind of a discrete implementation with a controller in one place, a sensor in another. So the device is very reliable and it makes the system more reliable too. Thank you. That was my next question. Thank you. So a question from another one from audience. Are you currently running GAN in production at six or eight? What is uh, inches, of course. What is your roadmap in terms of wafer size? Uh, and uh, do you see any sign of 300 millimeter coming for power? Good question. And thank you to Stuart. Uh, we are running six inch in TSMC in Shinsu, Taiwan. 
Um, I saw your earlier question, Stuart. It's uh, we use the enhancement mode, so it's the normally off technology, and then we integrate the driver, regulator, FET, under voltage lockout, everything on that IC. So we're running six inch. TSMC have announced an increase to eight inch. Uh, they haven't been very specific on schedule. As soon as they're ready, we'll move to it. We don't need to go there yet. Um, we've got a, a 3X capacity increase guarantee for this year and a very long relationship with TSMC. So um, obviously there are other companies out there with eight inch uh, gallium nitride. Um, so that's a general trend. I'm not sure if we'll see 300 millimeter. Um, who knows? But it's the good thing because it's, you know, again, GAN on silicon, the wafers already exist. So it's all yes. about growing epi and then defining the chip on top. Thank you. So uh, about uh, in the previous talk, we talked about decarbonization. So what's the, from your point of view, the impact of a wide band gap in terms of green engineering? Good question. Yeah, so we're, we're seeing obviously, thankfully, the transition from fossil fuel to electrification, um, specifically in electric vehicles. Uh, for now, the so wideband gap is obviously accelerating that change. Having silicon carbide for traction drive gives you a a smaller, more efficient drive unit. Um, having gallium nitride for the charger section gives you smaller, more efficient units. So you have what's called the dematerialization. Mm -hmm. When you have more efficiency, you don't need a heatsink. No heatsink. No aluminium no bauxite, no shipping. So that all reduces the CO2. We did a lot of work, which was third-party verified, that said every time we ship one of our GAN power ICs, we have a net four kilogram benefit of the reduction of CO2 compared to the old silicon technology. And we see a similar thing for silicon carbide. We're going through the detailed process now having that third-party verification, and we'll have a detailed report on silicon carbide and a refresh on our GAN uh, green credentials um, about Q3 this year. What about uh, motor control with GAN? And uh, uh, just uh, the last one, uh, uh, so next future, next uh, uh, breakthroughs, if you can anticipate uh, something about also you mentioned in your talk, uh, roadmap uh, in the future and in the long term and some uh, news. So starting with the motor drive, yes, um, using both GAN and silicon carbide for motor drive, you are able to go to high switching frequency, which helps with the power. And we're looking in many cases to integrate the actual inverter and the motor drive itself. So that, that really helps. You've got a very high efficiency solution. With the, the GAN parts, um, we've made a, a very successful transition also into home appliance market. Um, mm. And um, we've got a team uh, based in Germany that's really looking at the motor drives. We've done things like uh, a 400 watt uh, three-phase motor drive using our half-bridge power ICs. So in this case, we've got a half-bridge on each leg. Uh, we can also do things like the lossless current sensing, which is critical and uh, control the, the voltage slew rate, the DV by DT, um, to really do a very good job with the motor drive. And we can basically you know, shrink by 3x, 4x compared to a traditional IGBT. In the home appliance uh, and industrial market, we're seeing um, 
scan maybe up to a kilowatt. Mm -hmm. um, above that, um, the silicon carbide high current density maybe has a, a benefit. Um, within an electric vehicle, um, obviously, you've also got the voltage to think about. So a 400 volts uh, battery bus, you could uh, use GAN for the drive. Uh, 800 volts, simplicity always wins. Uh, 1200 volt silicon carbide device is more suitable. In terms of a roadmap, um, you'll see um, continued integration of features and functions on the, the GAN power okay. ICs. Also looking at uh, potentially going to lower voltages. With the silicon carbide um, and GAN, we're, we're on a, a pace of every 12 months or 15 months bringing out a new generation. So you'll see continued uh, die shrinks, which gives us a, a benefit in terms of cost for both ourselves, and then we can uh, give that benefit to the customer in terms of price as well. Um, silicon carbide, you know, going on to the next generation. Um, also going in terms of voltage, you know, Navitas, we go from 650 with GAN and silicon carbide up to 6,500 volts. So we're seeing actually a roadmap of new topologies coming out at 1700 volt, 3.3 kilovolt, 6.5 kilovolt, making use of these new high voltage devices. You know, I think we've talked in the past, it's the, the Leonardo principle. Da Vinci invented the helicopter, but he couldn't make it fly because he was using wood, cast iron and, and string. We've got these great topologies that can be adopted and gone, go from academia into industry now that we've got these new technologies. So we have, uh, thanks a lot for being here. We have a couple of, uh, of questions. So let me start with one about uh, trench sick MOSFETs. So trench sick MOSFETs are developed for, for power applications to reduce uh, conduction uh, losses, switching losses compared to, to the planar one. So to validate these, uh, these benefits uh, of the high power trench silicon carbide devices, static and dynamic uh, characterization will be required. So what are the, the limits for planar, critical issues, future trends for trench? Okay, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, uh, uh, the, the beauty of silicon carbide is that it's very silicon-like in its nature. So uh, we can uh, follow a lot of the uh, examples and conventional wisdom that has been accrued over the last 40 years of power device work in, in silicon. And this is one of the areas that uh, we, we benefit. And, uh, and, and, and what we're seeing is that ultimately the, the goal in these innovative next generation power devices in silicon, uh, carbide just like silicon, is we want to get those unit cells to be as small as possible. And the smaller you make that unit cell, the more of these unit cells you can place in a given area of, uh, of the device and thereby reducing the effect of those individual resistances by having more of them in parallel. So that's, that's the uh, kind of high level target of what's happening. And as, uh, as we make these uh, unit cells smaller and smaller, you ultimately get to the limit of planar, which is part of that unit cell is going to be defined by the channel region. So that channel region is on the top surface and it contributes to your overall, overall unit cell. So once you can make your design tighter and tighter, you eventually get to that point where 
now that 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 channel resist uh, channel formation part of that unit cell becomes a large part of that overall length. So you need to eliminate that to enable the next round of reductions of that unit cell. And that's where that trench comes in. You basically take the channels and point them down into the semiconductor mm. and thereby saving that approximately uh, one micron or so of uh, length that goes into forming those regions. And that enables that next uh, generation of, of cell pitch reductions. Uh, so that's the same entitlement you get in silicon. We're leveraging that in silicon carbide. And, and, and when you can get to those types of unit cell pitches, you can really uh, differentiate yourselves from the planar technology. Now, what, what is the, the challenge of doing that, which is very unique to silicon carbide, doesn't exist in silicon, uh, is that the, uh, the electric fields inside the silicon carbide are an order of magnitude higher than what is in silicon. And the consequence of that is that when you go from that high field silicon carbide into, the, uh, into that gate oxide that's at the bottom of the trench, you're experiencing a very high electric field, uh, one that uh, uh, can become unreliable in its operation. Uh, and, and that uh, electric field does scale up by the ratio of the dielectric constants, meaning that you could have, if you have two to three megavolts per centimeter at the silicon carbide level, that could scale up to uh, five to seven megavolt per centimeter in the oxide, which becomes unreliable. You have the effects of the corner as well. So that's been the challenge is how do you protect that gate oxide at the bottom? Uh, and, and the released implementations of this solution uh, by suppliers of trench, they solve it by protecting that with additional non-used trench uh, areas, uh, which is a great solution to protect the oxide, but it does come at the expense of increasing that uh, that cell pitch from what your entitlement is. And for that reason, you don't, in today's release product, you still see the best planer still quite competitive with the trench products out there. But as this problem gets solved and you can begin to do it without the cost of additional uh, unused trenches, uh, then you get to the point where you can really differentiate and have that next generation of performance that goes into an area that planar cannot uh, achieve due to the limitations of the channel being formed uh, uh, on the top surface. So, so that's the that's the the main Great. challenge of trench, and uh, I think that's definitely the technology that this will be going towards. Uh, but at the moment, there's still quite a bit of uh, of uh, uh, of similarity between the two in terms of performance. Uh, uh, but the, the major benefit of the planar now being, as mentioned in the presentation, is the, 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 the field-proven aspect of it with it being out in the field with so many field hours and, and good performance to date. Great. Thank you. So we have uh, a poll. So I would like to, to invite to, to vote. To vote for the poll, please go to the tab. Uh, Emrina, tell me your... Uh, vote your preference from from your point of view what is the primary driver for adapting silicon carbide uh, components in uh, automotive high power enables longer <laughs> longer range cost reduction reliability so I, I think the the primary driver uh, at the end of the day for for any system is is really to uh, achieve uh, the the overall cost targets to enable adoption. So there's so many yeah, technologies that, that, 
<laughs> yeah, it, ultimately, someone has to buy <laughs> the the end user has to buy this, and so it has to <clears throat> achieve a certain cost metric that is palatable <laughs> uh, to the uh, to the end user. So, in the case of electric vehicles, having them in a price point that's uh, more uh, comparable to uh, mm-hmm. to the uh, existing solutions, which is the uh, the uh, the ICE engines, the internal combustion engines, uh, that's going to be a, the, the main thing. And then that gets people into the cars, but now you have to build the infrastructure around it. So you have to have the, the fast charging network uh, so that it's a similar experience to what they have with their gas-powered vehicles. Uh, so it's pretty complicated, but I think the, the first thing is you've got to get the cost there so you can get people into the into the vehicles and then build the infrastructure around it. Yeah. So we have time uh, for uh, another another question, maybe another uh, another one. We have uh, another poll: uh, which application in the electric vehicle powertrain do you see as uh, the most suitable for silicon carbide components? So this is a nice question. Tell me your comment, Emrian. Yeah. So uh, the the traction inverter is is especially nice for silicon carbide. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh uniquely because uh it it leverages the fact that uh uh you need the efficiency uh you need higher perf- uh, higher frequency operation because the, the these are uh, advanced uh, electric machines going uh, operating at a much higher fundamental frequency so it naturally pulls you out of uh the silicon sweet spot if you will uh when you're looking at uh a kilohertz range of a fundamental. Mm. Now you require switching frequencies, at least an order of magnitude above that to create a nice sine wave. So this moves it towards silicon carbide. The fact that it's such high power gives silicon carbide an advantage over other wide band gap solutions, such as uh, gallium nitride and other emerging Mm -hmm. technologies. So for silicon carbide, the the traction inverter is is a very comfortable space that that values what it brings to table over both silicon and other wide band gap solutions. I think uh, the onboard charger, DC to DC converter, those are all nice solutions for wide band gap that could be addressed with other technologies as well because the power level is low. The mission critical nature of those elements are less. So the, so the reliability uh, and high power uh, capability is minimized in, in those. So I think that's great opportunity for other wide band gaps to get in. Uh, motor drive, I would say, would be the least, uh, mostly because uh, the, your conventional motor drive, you're going to be limited in the, uh, yeah. the slew rates that are that are permissible because uh, you do have a very simple motor uh, at the load, and you don't get the benefit of wide bandwidth, meaning that driving it at higher DVDTs, you're limited by five to ten volts per nanosecond, and it's a very it's a typically a 60 hertz or so fundamental, so it's well in the sweet spot of silicon. I don't see that really moving away unless you get uh, into some more modern uh, type mm-hmm. of uh, applications that will value the the wide band gap and silicon carbide uh, value. Okay, great, great. So thanks a lot. Uh, so just one uh, minute, minute, very fast, uh, Marina. Just uh, yes. updates about uh, 200 millimeter silicon carbide devices, mass production uh, development, very fast. 
<laughs> so very fast. So obviously, uh, it is needed uh, to enable both the required future cost reduction, yeah. but more importantly, it's needed for the capacity expansion. So there's so much demand. Uh, you see these projections of electric vehicles. Uh, uh, the 150 millimeter is a great platform, but it's not enough to meet this upcoming demand, especially as, you, as we approach the, uh, the latter part of this decade. So uh, that's needed. The challenge of 200 millimeter is it can be made today. Uh, many, there are many, many demonstrations of 200 millimeter. Where it needs yeah. to be is, is to have the same level of defectivity and physical properties that we enjoy on 150 millimeter today. So until we get that, we, we're not getting the full entitlement of the 200 millimeter uh, which is to reduce cost, uh, increase capacity. Uh, so th that's where that's where uh, we are today. And uh, you know, there's there's various people within the industry. But the main challenge to make it mainstream is to get uh, that material quality and physical attributes to the point where we can now install it into the uh, 200 millimeter upstream capacity and allow that uh, process to really take off. But right now, that's where a lot of that work is, is to get the get it to the level where 150 millimeter is today. 150 millimeters is, is, is at a very nice spot, very low defectivity, you know, really high throughput through the fabs. Once we get 200 millimeter that same point, it'll really open up a lot of excess capacity uh, to not only meet the, uh, the demands that's upcoming, but also opening up uh, engineering uh, bandwidth to really drive mm -hmm. innovation. Power electronics design will continue to focus on reducing the size and the complexity of devices while increasing their functionality. Let's talk about the other power trends with UB Noto, Director of Marketing at Silana Semiconductor, and Filippo Di Giovanni, Innovation and Key Programs Manager, Power Transistor Macro Division at ST Microelectronics. Thank you so much to everyone. Thank you, UB. Thanks a lot uh, for this talk. Congratulations. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, thanks a lot for being here at PowerUp. So we we have a couple of questions. Um, let me start um, with my first one about uh, uh, challenges. So talking about uh, power management challenges, uh, for sure we should mention uh, efficiency, power density, uh, thermal. Thermal, issue, thermal management, EMI, and, and others more. Uh, in ACDC power supplies, for example, if you would choose uh, an architecture, active clamp flyback, uh, or others, this would improve efficiency. High power density designs are important in, in fast chargers. Uh, power adapters, where form factor, weight, uh, have uh, a fundamental impact on user experience and uh, permit also to reuse the external components or the bomb, the famous bomb list. Talking about uh, power density, we should mention, as I said earlier, thermal management issues that are becoming increasing uh, uh, due to the, the area that will be smaller, small surface area for dissipating uh, the heat. So which is most critical? What, uh, what do you think? Where are you seeing more challenges? Um, in my opinion, uh, you know, efficiency is the most important uh, because you know efficiency directly <clears throat> impacted you know the uh, consumable energy, right? So if you're very efficient, you know, even charger draw 
a little power for mobile phone, but for laptop, it draws significance, right? So if you have 50% more efficiency, uh, multiplied by hundreds of millions in the world, uh, the impact to you know the carbon footprint is really significant. So I think efficiency uh, we should stress you know is very important you know to keep going forward to get better and better. Um, unfortunately, yeah, when people thought, hey, it's more efficient, I can make it smaller size, uh, so it's easier to carry. Uh, yes, it's very true, um, but you know, going into smaller size will have several uh, impacts. You know, one of them, uh, the thermal will go higher because the volume to dissipate, you know, it's shrinking, um, and then um, the uh, technology how to keep everything fit in that small size also has to be taken into consideration, uh, which is uh, if you use highest technology with the newest product that has smaller size, usually uh, will be more expensive. You know, for instance, like highly integrated stuff, right? Uh, initially, they don't come cheap, you know. So getting smaller uh, will increase the size. So is it really worth people to buy? Maybe some for some people. Uh, but then, remember the challenge is uh, in power management. We surrounded by multiple, uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, agency that we have to comply. You know, one of them is safety, uh, and one of the safety is thermals, right? So when you shrunk the size smaller and smaller. Um, where do you get the heat out? <laughs> the heat out is getting more concentrated into the small size, you know, therefore it will get harder, right? So then there is a limit where we cannot exceed a certain temperatures, you see? So you got to get a lot of challenges. And second is there's another limit that we have to there is the EMI. <laughs> you cannot radiate everywhere you want. You cannot listen to your radio otherwise, right? So <laughs> getting the size very small uh, to pass EMI will be extremely challenging. Uh, so I think, therefore, you know, the conclusion is uh, we should have, you know, some reasonable size, uh, but cannot uh, remove the efficiency. So, gotta put efficiency number one priority. Thank you. Good point. So, may you elaborate uh, a little bit on the protection features of uh, your component 3000 to A back uh, converter, such as uh, overcurrent protection or voltage, over temperature, and so on. So, how do these features ensure the safety of the connected uh, devices? And uh, is uh, your back converter fully? A silicon-based application, or does it use wideband gap materials? Okay, so to answer first of all, our solution is <clears throat> uh, still using standard uh, silicon base, uh, but we are uh, highly integrated. It's uh, what I mean is it's a single die, uh, so even with these uh, low ohmic uh, uh, switches. We actually mm -hmm. design our own switches. Uh, so this is uh, true uh, monolithic solutions. 
the uh, your your second questions about um, the safety is yes. because Protection. this mm -hmm. is monolithics. It's a lot easier for us to okay. to add all kinds of uh, features. Uh, of course, the critical one is overcurrent. Uh, in case uh, someone uh, loading this uh, with uh, higher power than it's uh, allowed. Um, so yeah, the unit has uh, very accurate uh, current sensing. Uh, so once it's uh, detected over this uh, limit, uh, mm -hmm. we will actually fall back and we'll actually shut it down. But everything will get restart. So that's one of the protections. The second is uh, overvoltage. Um, again, there are two kinds of overvoltage. <laughs> One of them will happen if the external, you know, when people plugged in something, you know, to to induce our product overvoltage, or uh, our internal device fail that producing. So most of the protection we have is really to make the user's uh, load to be safe. Okay, so. It's basically something happened with our device, uh, we will protect it. So for over voltage, it's the same thing. So when when something happened internally where the voltage climbing up, uh, we also have independent uh, voltage sensing. Uh, when it reaches a certain point, uh, we will shut it down. But for the external means, if someone pushing it, we'll shut down, but then we're going to reset. For internal issues, we know something happened that's been catastrophic. So when we shut down, that's it. It remains shut down. Uh, but there's other things, you know, like thermal temperature, uh, thermal uh, protections. Uh, we are, the, you know, the the first one that we can actually throttle back. You know, so let's say we're delivering 65 watt, but for whatever reason, you know, someone put it in a in a sauna <laughs> where the temperature is too hot. Uh, so when it's sensing to the specific limit, this limit is also, by the way, programmable. Uh, so mm -hmm. when, when people design this product, they can initially set what temperature you want to have this uh, throttle back. Uh, so these things, once it hit the temperature, it will set to the next uh, uh, power contract down. Good. Thank you. So, and another question that uh, I have is about uh, vampire mode. So, can you tell me uh, power consumption level in uh, vampire mode? Vampire mode. How does it compare to the power consumption when the converter is uh, fully operational? What is the wake up mechanism from uh, vampire mode? Okay. Uh, yeah. Good question. So, vampire. To me, it's very important because uh, most people, uh, they just don't like to unplug the charger from the wall or the power strip, right? So they just leave it there as a convenience. When yeah. they want to plug it in back in, they just get the cable and plug it in. Um, so having these uh, chargers without any load, uh, Reducing the power is very important because again, the number of these uh, charges is tremendous all over the world, right? Yeah. So uh, we call this a uh, vampire mode is what it does is it actually sensing uh, all the ports. If all the ports completely uh, uh, disconnected, uh, so the PD will uh, sense there's no load. 
So what happened is uh, then the PD will communicate to the to the power source, which is the DCDC and ACTDC, where we say, hey, we have no load, so therefore bring it down. So so then we you know we we bring the the voltage level down, uh, we bring the, the current level down, everything will be bring down. So the delta is quite significant, you know, for example, for three ports uh, applications, uh, typically uh, the no load, if you don't use Vampire, mm -hmm. they hovering in the 300 milliwatts, maybe a lot of them are over 300, 320s, you know, in that range. When yeah. we activate this vampire mode, uh, we only consume 160. So it's really practically a 50% reductions. Just imagine 50% reduction multiplied by millions, right? It's, yes. it's a good saving. Yeah, it's a good saving. So what do you think about uh, uh, simulation? So design resources are important for uh, engineers, uh, not only from hardware point of view, but also from simulation tools for power is uh, is important. We will talk about this one uh, during the next panel. But what do you think? What's your activity among among that? <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's many many <laughs> uh, simulation tools available <laughs> uh, currently. Uh, they're not cheap, <laughs> but they're quite good. They're very accurate. Uh, but because they're so good, uh, they're not really easy to use. So it will take a lot of uh, practice or even you may have to attend the training uh, to be able to use such uh, really nice tools, right? Um, in average- five models. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Many uh, engineers don't really have much time. You know, they, they prefer, <laughs> you know, some intuitive, you know, that they, they don't have to go through the training. So we kind of take the approach, you know, say, hey, why we make it ourselves complicated, you know? So the way Solana doing is we just use like uh, using like an Excel, you know, everybody use Excel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> everybody know how to manipulate within Excel, right? So we, we, we just try to use the basic Excel so people don't have to do training. But we make it such a way so it's a lot easier for them. So we already put the uh, the form basically. So people just enter uh, the basic informations like the input information, the output information, what they want to do. Uh, so the moment they click these things, uh, we will in the background we have all these uh, codes, you know, that we can do a lot of the calculations, you know. So we're gonna spit out every component values needed to have our products uh, designed, okay? So again, because our product is highly integrated, so the number yeah. of external components is very minimal. Um, so then this uh, Excel-based tool is very easy. So it will show you the schematic, it'll show you every component, you know, resistor, capacitor value, inductors, right? Um, if you use those components based on our recommendations, we guarantee 
99%. <laughs> when you power it up, it will power up just fine. <laughs> But of course, the last 1%, you probably have to tweak a little bit, you know. So the reason is maybe you want a little bit more efficient, you want more accurate, you know, so stuff like that. You probably can tweak this component value a little bit. But it's good enough, very quick, very easy, no need to do any training whatsoever. That's how the approach we do. Uh, I think we will continue that way. So the burden is on us that we do a lot of the complicated calculation behind the scenes, uh, but the input section, we keep it very simple. Good. So during this, um, uh, this year, so DC-DC back converters have improved for sure. One area of uh, improvement is uh, the speed at which the, the switching uh, transition takes place. So this, uh, anyway, has uh, challenges to bypassing the input supply voltage, for example, the V-in. So mm -hmm. if we don't manage this one correctly, the challenges in, uh, so there will be the challenges. So you you have problems in terms of high DIDT that can disturb mm -hmm other circuits. So which are the best uh, practices here? So if you don't manage uh, correctly the challenges in uh, high side, so we you can produce a high DIDT that can disturb others. Um, yes, uh, very good questions. Uh, so uh, if you notice uh, most of the, the DC to DCs, uh, you know, or AC to DC, Uh, people tend to keep it uh, within a certain frequency band. Uh, mm -hmm. Typically, they're quite low, maybe 150 kilohertz for DC-DC, uh, maybe around 80, 70 kilohertz on AC to DC, right? So there's a lot of reason for that is, yeah, number one is like you said, this DIDT, uh, how you manage the switching the um, uh, between the high side to the low side, or even the worst is how to uh, mitigate the EMI when you have a higher mm -hmm. DITs. Uh, so, so they tend to be smaller and lower frequency band. But uh, so for Silana, we, our DC-DC, I think, is one of the you know, highest uh, frequency. So we, uh, we have a selectable frequencies uh, starting at 667 kilohertz. Uh, we can also select all the way to 2 megahertz. Um, so when you switch in the megahertz range, uh, there's a lot of challenges. Uh, that's uh, the point is that's why uh, we gotta use uh, fully integrated switch. Uh, so the FET, uh, those high side, low side, it has to be internals. Um, So that's why the big difference with the other DC-DC uh, guys, the, you know, they have an external FET that you can use whatever different FETs you have, but you limit it with uh, running at the lower frequency. So when you do that, the size will get bigger. So for us, we like to maintain high frequency because we like to keep it small, but how to keep uh, away from this issue with the IDT, with uh, the EMI issues, you know, with so many other issues, right? So the integrations of the FAT is very important because the, the FAT uh, has um, multiple channel actually within the FAT. So 
the way we drive this fat, uh, so it's very complicated. We have a digital controls that we can manage the, the gate drive such a way that we can manage the, the slew rate. Uh, so it depends on the conditions, the load, you know, during startup, light load, full load and everything. So our digital control will have a dynamic uh, uh, driving capabilities that we uh, continuously adjust. Uh, so therefore we optimize uh, our DIDT, we optimize uh, the, the overlapping, you know, so uh, this way we can maintain uh, flat efficiency across the load range from full load to light load. And we also make sure uh, minimizing the EMI at the same time. So you can only do that when you have uh, internal switch where the switch is designed by yourself that you have full control of the gates uh, of the switches. Thank you, thank you. Hi, Filippo. Thank you. Okay, we have uh, a couple of questions. In particular, I have a couple of, of questions. Let me, so let me understand better about uh, uh, thermal management considerations. So how does MD Mesh technology address thermal issues, considerations in power electronics applications? Okay. Okay, Maurizio. First of all, uh, do you hear my voice well? Yes, everything is good. Very good. Uh, you always uh, uh, organize uh, everything perfectly, Maurizio. Thank you. So uh, I think that uh, thermal considerations uh, uh, depend uh, on a general uh, quest for increasing uh, uh, power density in today's power electronics. Such quests, uh, of course, uh, translate uh, into big efforts by semiconductor manufacturers to uh, scale down chip sizes, so to uh, squeeze uh, uh, silicon and use uh, small outline packages like uh, uh, SMD versions in order to accommodate uh, more compact uh, systems. Of course, such trend in theory would conflict uh, with the device's capability uh, to remove uh, the heat generated during normal operation. Therefore, it is uh, absolutely necessary to keep improving uh, the technology's performance in terms of uh, reduces, uh, reduced losses whether they be conduction or switching losses. At the same time, packages must be designed in order to exhibit better performance like reduced inductances in order to operate the devices at higher frequencies. And of course, uh, such approach uh, is the same whether we are talking about uh, uh, MD mesh, silicon-based uh, MD mesh, or uh, um, uh, uh, silicon carbide uh, MOSFETs. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's exactly the same approach. Now, in order to substantiate uh, such uh, statements, I would like to uh, reshow two of, of the slides uh, belonging to to my uh, presentation. 
Uh, one is uh, slide uh, number uh, 13, uh, illustrating uh, the, the improvement of uh, the technology e generation M9 with respect to M5 in uh, a power factor corrector uh, circuit and in LLC uh, resistor converter uh, circuit. Now, as you can see, with the with the M9 generation, we have we have kept uh, basically the same performance, but the device is so optimized that uh, we can also use uh, a smaller package like TO220 instead of uh, TO247. And uh, this does not uh, uh, deteriorate or worsen, uh, uh, you know, efficiency as we can see on, on uh, you know, from the two curves. The yeah. other uh, slide uh, considers the same uh, package uh, for the two technologies, which is PowerFlat, an SMD uh, device. So as you can see, thanks to the drastic improvement in performance, the device of uh, in M9 generation runs much cooler than uh, the same device in the older technology. And, uh, and this is uh, at both 110 input voltage and also 230 uh, volt input, uh, input voltage. So this is uh, uh, the proof uh, that, uh, you know, we are still, uh, uh, you know, uh, we are considering uh, um, thermal uh, uh, issues uh, in both uh, uh, silicon redesign and also package redesign. Good, thank you, thank you, Felipe. So, um, talking about application, uh, how do you see the automotive market? Because uh, um, ST is uh, investing in Sinogar Byte too. Uh, uh, how do you see in terms of hybrid application? In this case, uh, in terms of MD mesh and the silicon garbide, how do you manage the portfolio between uh, them? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, I will start by saying that uh, ST Microelectronics is a wide range supplier of uh, power transistors. So our efforts are devoted to uh, innovating both silicon and also silicon carbide and also next uh, uh, gallium nitride. In silicon carbide, we are uh, undisputed the market leader, and we keep investing to match, the, you know, to match the, you know, the rising demand for higher efficiency uh, MOSFETs used in uh, electric vehicles, but also in high, uh, you know, in uh, industrial uh, uh, applications. In silicon high voltage MOSFETs like uh, MD mesh, uh, we are one of the largest uh, suppliers. In certain uh, uh, onboard chargers uh, platforms with limited output power, uh, we can realize a hybrid solution in that the AC to DC converter can be realized in a mesh, whereas the DC to DC converter can be realized using silicon carbide MOSFETs in order to uh, maximize uh, uh, efficiency. So I would say that uh, uh, being able to reach a dominant position in different uh, technologies is not mutually exclusive. Also, considering that uh, there are some basic uh, commonalities between silicon and a, a, a silicon carbide. Just, uh, just an example that I highlighted in my presentation, the superjunction process that ST has mastered for 20, 20 years can also be extended, extended with the right changes, of course, uh, to silicon carbide. So 
customers in the end using uh, MD mesh can be motivated to adopt the silicon carbide without changing a supplier because yeah. we are investing in both technologies. So, talking about cost, so uh, first of all, let's understand which are the main differences in terms of manufacturing comparison with silicon carbide. I mean, silicon carbide, because if I, I am correct, we have similar architecture that is vertical. But mentioning cost, so which is the direction of cost also in comparison with other wide band gap materials, in particular also, uh, again, so maybe a comparison of the cost and performance between the fast MD mesh and again in at 650. Okay. Well, uh, I will start by saying that uh, there are certainly some uh, similarities between the silicon MOSFETs and its counterpart in silicon carbide. But the similarity is very much limited. Uh, first of all, they both share the same uh, uh, vertical uh, uh, structure or uh, the same, uh, sil- uh, you know, the same uh, gate oxide uh, concept. But uh, now mm-hmm. these are there are a lot of differences, of course. First of all, silicon carbide is a very tough material. So we cannot use the fusion steps, but we have, uh, unlike silicon, but we have to use ion uh, implants to uh, realize uh, a device. The other problem uh, for silicon carbide MOSFETs is that uh, the technology itself uh, Basically, we have high field, high electric field inside silicon carbide. So, in designing a silicon carbide device like a MOSFET, special care has to be exercised. For instance, in order to shield oxide, in order to reduce the strength of the electric fields near. Uh, you know, uh, near delicate uh, um, uh, zones, delicate uh, um, uh, points like uh, um, oxide. Now, silicon, in terms of manufacture, manufacturing equipment, silicon carbide uh, needs uh, special, uh, special reactors, special uh, equipment. I would like to also mention uh, GAN. GAN is the other member of the wide band gap uh, family. And in uh, manufacturing GAN, we can still use uh, existing CMOS uh, fabs mm-hmm. with some uh, adaptation, of course, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, upgrade. Now, let's consider uh, a, little, uh, a little bit, uh, you know, the other question that you raised, uh, cost. Well, cost is also different, but if we take as a reference uh, a cost of ownership or system cost, uh, silicon carbide is quite competitive. Let's just consider, for instance, uh, the benefits of using silicon carbide MOSFETs in an electric vehicle uh, inverter. They allow for significant cost reduction in terms of cooling system, which is one of the costlier uh, subsystems in an electric vehicle. It allows uh, designers to use smaller, more compact uh, uh, electronics, and it allows uh, 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 us to use uh, uh, faster uh, chargers. So all translates into longer driving uh, uh, ranges for uh, uh, an electric vehicle powered by silicon carbide. So in other words, instead of talking about uh, uh, generic uh, uh, cost uh, uh, target, we have to, to consider cost of, of ownership and system cost. I think these are the two uh, 
targets that need to be taken into into account when talking about uh, um, you know uh, costs of different technologies. Great, thank you. Good point. So, considering the evolution of uh, Mesh, so where you you saw where where have you seen the best improvements? What are the benefits that the improvements have brought about? Well, uh, I think that uh, as uh, was clear from, uh, I hope, from my uh, presentation, uh, there has been uh, from ST a relentless and continuous uh, improvement in, uh, in MDMesh, and this has revamped uh, silicon in general. Uh, I have to say that uh, it's a cost uh, uh, to performance ratio makes uh, uh, MD mesh products still attractive, especially uh, in applications uh, where you don't really need uh, the super performance of silicon carbide. And one of the best versions, if I can say that, uh, is the, the one with the fast diode, which is ideal in different uh, uh, configurations like uh, mm-hmm. like outbridge or full bridge because it allows for improvement uh, uh, inefficiency um, but but of course uh, such improvements have been obtained without compromising the well established quality and ruggedness of uh, mm-hmm. of knowledge but that that's not all because as i said uh, at the end of my presentation a new major step forward uh, uh, will happen when uh, we uh, use the trench technology when we apply the trench technology to the uh, md mesh i think uh, that will represent another uh, quantum leap for uh, silicon so silicon is still alive and uh, you know it still lends itself uh, to uh to you know to draw to to source uh, and to improve uh, uh, transistor performance last but not least uh, even if we have not uh, talked specifically about that the third ingredient is the gallium nitride mm-hmm. first which is uh, you know is will will be up and running uh, especially in automotive in in some years from now good so we have time for uh, other Two questions, I guess. So one question is uh, from audience. Is MDMesh currently compatible with uh, ST-integrated CMOS technologies for fully monolithic solutions? And if not, if there is uh, any such plan to incorporate it? Uh, let us uh, let us not forget that uh, uh, MD mesh uh, is a, is a vertical uh, structure. Mm. It's not uh, not a lateral. So uh, integration is uh, is uh, uh, is not as easy as uh, 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 horizontal uh, uh, transistors. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there is still the possibility. There's still the possibility of adding some uh, extra features. I wouldn't uh, uh, say complete uh, integration as as uh, as the one we see in other technologies, but we can certainly include uh, integrate extra functions like uh, thermal shutdown, just to to mention one of them that could make the device 
a little bit more intelligent. It's not that it is stupid, of course, but that would add, uh, would add uh, extra functionalities that may resolve some of uh, the designer's uh, uh, issues. So it's not compatible uh, with CMOS, but it can uh, uh, it still lends itself to uh, to be integrated uh, with, uh, for instance, uh, extra useful functions like uh, uh, thermal shutdown, for instance, just to mention one of them. Okay, Filippo. So we have just one uh, minute, so I would ask you any question, but just a final remark. If you have a comment, if you would like to add something uh, about MD Mesh, what's next from ST in general? One minute. Well, Okay, uh, just a few words uh, uh, to uh, substantiate uh, my uh, presentation. One of the uh, uh, questions that are raised uh, uh, by, by people, especially now that the silicon carbide uh, uh, interest uh, is rising, is, is silicon still alive? I mean, how soon will silicon carbide take over uh, uh, silicon? Well, the answer is there is still room for silicon, not only that from, from the commercial standpoint, but also from the technology standpoint, there is still space to improve uh, uh, from the technology standpoint, uh, uh, silicon like, uh, like uh, uh, MD mesh. So uh, I think uh, uh, today uh, the point is not just offer one technology, but to offer uh, a spectrum of the technologies that mm -hmm. may match all the uh, applications. And I think okay. that uh, it is uh, exactly what, uh, what we are doing. It's not that uh, we are distracted because of course we are undisputed yeah. market leader in silicon carbide, but mm -hmm. by keeping investing in in in, in silicon like MD mesh does not mean that uh, we will uh, reduce our presence in in most advanced okay. technology because again there are some commonalities. It's the other way around because uh, some new process steps that uh, uh, we are debugging in silicon, like MD mesh, one day may be extended to silicon carbide, uh, and this is uh, the challenge of using yeah. of investing in both technologies. That brings us to the end of this episode. Stay tuned with more news and technical aspects about power electronics. If you are listening to this on the podcast page at eetimes.com or powerelectronicsnews.com, links to articles on topics we have discussed are shown on this page. Power Up is brought to you by Aspen Core Media. The host is Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio and the producer is James Ede.